Let me tell you a story, podcast number 90. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how truth long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. I'm not sure how December snuck up on us, but here we are, in the last month of the year already. And what a year it's been. So many people have suffered so much sadness and loss. But we'll try to add some Christmas humor to this podcast, as well as David Roper's comforting thoughts, and that should bring you some cheer and hope for the season. And we'll also read from Bethany Rio's latest book, titled Even If. But first, I'll start us off by finishing Chapter 28 in Winds of Wyoming and reading a bit into Chapter 29. Ramsey peered through the slits of his eyelids. Two men faced each other at the end of his bed. One in green scrubs, one in uniform. We stitched him back together, the doctor was speaking. The wound was deep and he lost some blood, but we didn't find any serious damage. I need to monitor him for two or three days, mostly because we were unable to examine the weapon. Then I recommend you isolate him for several weeks to ensure he doesn't get involved in another altercation or any other activity that might compromise the sutures. We have an isolation cell, the uniformed man said, and we'll post guards outside this room as long as he's here. The doctor made a notation on the clipboard. He won't be hopping out of bed anytime soon, but I appreciate the department taking precautions. Panic rose from Ramsey's gut, nearly choking him. He fought to keep his breathing steady. Two, maybe three days, and he'd be returned to that hellhole. I'll ask Mom to call the vet. Mike lifted the two away from his belt. He can remove the bullet from the cow, and maybe he'll know where to send it out to find what gun it came from, if that's possible. I'd do it myself, but we should probably have a third party investigate this. Clint nodded. Good thinking. Before he could call the office, Laura's voice came through the speaker. Are you there, Mike? He pushed the button. You're hard to hear, Mom. Talk louder. I can't. Her voice was barely a whisper. Buck Cunningham is standing in the lobby with Mamie and Minnie. I closed the office door so we can talk privately. The knots in his stomach tightened. A blue jay squawked at a squirrel in the neighboring tree. The squirrel jabbered back. He held the radio against his ear. They say you promised to arrange buffalo hunts for them, but you keep putting them off. Not only do they feel misled, they feel cheated of their money. Her voice dropped even lower. Buck wants to return, wants me to return all their money. Plus, he's threatening to sue us. I was about to radio the office, Mom, to ask you to call Doc Hall. We need his help with an injured bison. Tell Cunningham and the twins they can hunt after the vet visits, possibly as early as tomorrow morning, if Doc can make it out this afternoon. And if they had time to haul the carcass to the processing plant before it closed. He didn't want to explain the dead buffalo to the guests or tell his mother that yet another cow had been killed while he watched. 
Chapter 29 On his way to the house, Mike came upon two sheriff's SUVs parked in front of the Blue Jay. He pulled alongside one of them and cut the engine. Was this the house search Bernie was so fired up about? A family of five sauntered past, eyeing the vehicles. He raised his hand in greeting. By now, their guests had to be wondering why deputies visited the WP every other day. Stepping from the passenger side, he slammed the truck door shut and strode toward the cabin. As he neared the open doorway, he heard Caldwell call. This cabin is a mother load, Ramirez. Maybe we should go through Nielsen's car again. Mike folded his arms and leaned against the doorframe. Caldwell was on one knee in front of the sofa, his arm under a cushion. Eyebrows raised, Mike said. You've already searched every inch of this cabin, Bernie. Caldwell straightened, his eyes wide and excited. As good as we are, we miss these babies. He held a tiny plastic bag between his latex-clad fingers. Found them in the oven, in the bathroom cupboard, and between the mattresses. What is it? Mike asked. Can't say for sure until we get the lab test, but some of the packets are filled with white powder. He looked at the one in his hand. This one has crushed leaves. He smirked. Can't imagine what plant that came from. Found another one, Deputy Ramirez walked in from the bedroom. In the bottom dresser drawer, he grinned. That was a great tip-off we got. Mike looked from one officer to the other. Any chance this is a setup? If this is such a drug gold mine, you'd have found at least a couple of those packets before. Caldwell stood, sucking air until his shoulders rose and his chest filled his shirt. Can't please you, Duncan. First you complain because we don't find enough evidence or we don't come up with a suspect. And when we do find good solid proof, you call it a setup. Did my mom tell you about the missing keys? Mike asked. She mentioned them. What does that have to do with this? Maybe someone used a key to get in here and to break into our office. Caldwell narrowed his eyes. You trying to tell us how to do our jobs? Before Mike could respond, he said, We're taking this stuff in for testing. He dangled one of the packets in front of Mike. If this proves to be what I think it is, you're going to be in a heap of trouble, along with Ms. Nielsen. After all, you're the owner of this building. He handed Mike the key to the cabin and left. Mike watched the two officers drive off. Bernie knew he couldn't be charged with drug possession because he owned the cabin. So why did he suggest the possibility? And who planted the packets? Was it the same person or persons who killed the bison? Or someone out to get Kate? He closed and locked the Blue Jay door. Maybe it was the guy who broke into the cabin. Was he still around? Through narrowed eyelids, Ramsey watched Tara Hughes smile her fake, fawning smile at the officer. One hand on the gurney, the other on her hip, she gushed. Good morning, officer. She leaned closer to read the name tag on his uniform. Watts. Just what I need. A big, strong, handsome man to help me lift this patient here. She winked and adjusted the mask that covered her nose and mouth. Where are you taking him? To the lab, she scooted the gurney next to the bed. His doctor ordered a bevy of tests. We'll earn our paychecks today. I'll escort you. Can you grab his legs? Ramsey willed his muscles to go limp. He didn't know how the redhead had found him, 
but maybe this was his ticket to freedom. The officer pushed. Tara pulled. The pain was nearly intolerable, but eventually they got him transferred from the bed onto the gurney. Tara straightened the sheets, all the while eyeing the deputy's shirt pocket. This might be a good time for that smoke break you've been hankering for. She winked again. I'll bring him back as soon as we're finished with him. Officer Watts touched the telltale rectangle but shook his head. Don't tempt me. He grabbed the bed. I'll push this for you. If you insist. As soon as they exited the room, she hurried ahead, high heels tapping. The deputy caught up with her at the elevator and steered the gurney inside, bumping it against the railing. Ramsey moaned, but didn't stir. Tara followed them in. No one hurried to join them. As the doors closed, Ramsey saw her slip something from the pocket of her scrubs and sidle up to Officer Watts. A moment later, the man fell across Ramsey's feet. Here's a poem from Eugene Shea called Christmas is the Crazy Time. Christmas is the crazy time, neither reason or with rhyme. When lunacy afflicts the masses, we spend our cash to purchase trash while fat bankers tip their glasses. We run the stores from door to doors and seldom take a breather. Spend money we ain't got for things we don't want to give to folks that don't want them either. Sterling storks and pickle forks are bought upon a whim, and few debate the usurious rate that credit cards will charge them. On Christmas Day, the children play. That's the way it ought to be. Older folks, until he croaks, should only pay. Drag Grandma from the Christmas tree. Wealthy bards write Christmas cards, sky high the prices they ask for them, while written notes should get their goats, and most folks would prefer them. May health and wealth and loads of pelf all be coming straight your way, but I'll put myself upon the shelf until holiday season goes away. I'll be reading the prologue for Bethany Reel's latest book. I believe this is her third one, and it's titled Even If. I like that title. It has a lot of mystery to it. So here's the prologue. Lillian Rogers towed carefully around a patch of ice on the sidewalk, wondering for the dozenth time what on earth she was doing. Who takes a long walk in heels in below freezing temperatures? It was a rhetorical question, really, because the answer was, a woman like her, a woman too numb in her soul to care about frostbite, one who wanted to avoid her home at all costs. Lillian turned a corner and a biting wind slapped against her face. She tucked her nose into the thick knitted scarf wrapped around her neck and reconsidered that last thought. Was a frozen, drippy nose and wind-stung face really preferable to his presence? Um, absolutely. She passed the Red Feather Lounge, her favorite place in the summer, to enjoy brunch on the patio, now bare of tables and chairs. Drifts of snow snuggled up close to the base of its brick exterior. 
The doorway for Bitter Creek Ale House was next. Lillian paused. Was it really over one year ago that she met Drew Mitchell in this place? The memory worked over her in icy shivers. The company-wide Christmas party for Treasure Valley Insurance Associates. The lonely corner table. Talking distractedly with women from the company whom she'd met over the years. Offering to be their designated driver. The moderately handsome man joining her at the table. If ever she had wanted a do-over. At the time, Lillian had been home from college for a year but still couldn't shake the shame and loneliness that had driven her home in the first place. While her friends drank and danced, Lillian nursed a Shirley Temple and babysat discarded coats and purses. You look like you're selling something. His voice startled her. It was more on the tenor side of the scale than she liked. Lillian angled her head to get a better look at him. He had a nice, if not handsome, face. Blonde hair cropped short, thin lips, charming smile. He gestured to the purses lined in a row and the coats piled on the chair next to her. Lillian's lips tilted to one side. We work for an insurance company. When aren't we selling something? He laughed at that and asked if he could sit with her. She shrugged in a non-committal acquiesce. Drew Mitchell, he said. Lillian Rogers, she said. Can I buy you a drink, he asked, after they established what they did in their company. He an agent, she a receptionist. And where they did it, the corporate office in Eagle for her, just up the street in Boise for him. No thank you, but she bit her lip. She really shouldn't ask. She didn't even know the guy. His eyes tweaked with interest, probably from the blush creeping over her cheeks, and he leaned forward. But what? She glanced around. Oh well, she'd probably never see him again. Can you stay here and watch the coats? I've had to go to the restroom for the last half hour, and my friends don't seem to be coming back anytime soon. He blinked slowly before he bared his perfectly straight teeth in a smile. Of course. When she returned, he'd ordered a beet hummus platter for them to share, and they talked until Lillian's co-workers were ready to leave. She thought of him all through the weekend, thinking they had a lot in common. In retrospect, realized the only thing they really had in common was their taste in music. Not exactly the cornerstone of a solid relationship. The following Monday, a bouquet of roses was delivered to her desk with a note from Drew asking her for a date. In her loneliness, she grabbed on tight to the promise of companionship and readily agreed. Before she could blink, they were exclusive. After eight months, Drew had convinced her to move in with him to save money. Soon after, the shine had worn off. Or maybe the root of loneliness that had never truly gone away was more prominent in the face of her deep shame and regret. Either way, she had to admit that the shadows of emptiness had haunted her heart long before today. And today had been crushing. She blinked. The long-ago lights of that Christmas party doled and ran together, trampled under the reality of what life withdrew, and apart from all that she wanted to be, was really like. And the images that now kept her from returning to the town home she and Drew rented together struck her again, sharper than the wind, colder than the snow. It all began with the maintenance man who called Lillian just this morning. Miss Rogers, the good news is, I finally got the part in I need for your heating unit, and I can repair it today around noon. 
The bad news is if you can't meet me today, you'll have to wait until a week from Monday. Tim spoke, breathing heavily into the phone. Lillian silently cheered. A massive snowstorm was headed their way and space heaters weren't cutting it. That's amazing news. I'll call my uh I'll call my roommate and see if he can meet you. She blushed. Nearly two years out of Christian college, and she still hated to admit that she lived with her boyfriend. I tried calling him first, but his boss says he's out for the day. If you can't be there, I'm not going to be able to do it, since we don't have time for written consent. It wasn't unusual for Drew to be stuck in meetings all day. That must be what Tim meant. Lillian's eyes swept over her cluttered desk. It was Friday. Time cards were due and had to be finished before the end of the day. She didn't want to take the time to drive home for lunch. Can't I just give you a verbal consent? She could practically hear Tim shaking his head. His breath moved back and forth over the mouthpiece. Nope, the boss doesn't do that anymore. Not after that crazy lady sued him a few years ago. She... No, it's fine, Lillian interrupted. Tim had told her all about the crazy lady. Multiple times. She pinched the bridge of her nose. There went her lunch break. I'll be there. At 11.30, Lillian promised her part-time desk partner, Roxanne, that she would return as soon as she'd eaten and let Tim into the apartment. She slid behind the wheel of her Ford Focus and drove 15 miles to her house. As she turned into the parking lot for the quaint grouping of townhouses, confusion scrunched her brows low over her eyes. Odd. What was her friend Hillary's car doing here? Did they have plans for lunch? As Lillian eyed the red Mustang, realization struck. The bad feeling she'd had all morning punched her in the gut. Hillary's sporty car was parked right next to Drew's black Chrysler 300. Lillian parked and shakily climbed out of the car. She followed the sidewalk with heavy steps, took a deep breath at the door, and then, with difficulty, fit her key into the lock. The trail of clothes particularly the matching pair of saucy unmentionables, crumpled in a heap at the threshold. Leading from the entryway to the partially closed bedroom door confirmed her suspicion. Her pulse pounded in her ears. The door blurred. Lillian knew better than to push it open, but she couldn't seem to stop her trembling fingers from reaching out to brush against it. A familiar creak rode on the hinges as it swung inward. It was just a glance. Just two forms, just bare legs entwined. Just the whisper of fabric as Drew sensed her presence and turned toward the door, face contorted in anger. What are you doing here? He threw in an expletive for good measure. Lillian blanched and retreated, just five steps out the door, twelve to her car, and fifteen miles to the office. It was just a glance, but it changed everything. Somehow, she had made it through the rest of the workday, had ignored Drew's text, had correctly entered and filed the information for the time cards, had resisted the urge to go back and key Drew's car. Not that she was that kind of person, but, given the circumstances, she could have been easily persuaded. Now that the day was over, she wandered aimlessly past the shops, restaurants, and banks of downtown Boise. But she'd stalled long enough, and it was time to go home and pack a few things. She could spend the night at her mom's, she guessed, and get the rest of her stuff later. Surely her mom's friends could help her move over the weekend. And then what? For certain she would hear about it for months to come. Her family had never liked Drew. 
Lillian sighed. For the first time that day, her stomach rumbled with hunger. She opened the door to Bitter Creek and made her way to the bathrooms. The tears had yet to surface, but she knew it was only a matter of time. Maybe once her face unfroze. Washing her face with warm water helped to revive her, as did the music. Something sassy about never getting back together. Preach it, girl, Lillian muttered under her breath as she exited the bathroom and walked the long hallway back toward the restaurant. An orange flyer on the community billboard caught her eye as she passed. Historic downtown studio immediately available for rent. The address listed was for the apartments in the building next to Bitter Creek. She tugged the paper free from the pin, holding it to the board. A door squeaked behind her, someone else leaving the bathrooms. It's like a sign, Lillian whispered. Probably because it is a sign. A rich baritone, lilting with barely suppressed laughter, startled her. She turned toward the source. A man, a head taller than she, dressed in a hoodie, jeans, and a Seahawks beanie, was flashing a smile at her, full and charming. What? She had just started to make out his face, square jaw, short beard, dark blue eyes, when he gestured to the paper in her hand. Smiling good-naturedly, he said, You said it's like a sign, and I just said that's because it is a sign. Oh, yeah, duh, I mean, it is a sign, but I meant it like, well, Lillian blushed. The cold must have numbed not only her face but her brain. Well, that and the searing image of her boyfriend in bed with another woman. And just like that, she lost it. The tears she thought were gracious enough to stay away all afternoon had only been waiting for a more opportune time to humiliate her. She tilted her head away from the man and blinked rapidly, but they came rushing forward. Her breath abandoned her next, coming in rasping gulps. Pull it together, she told herself. Take a deep breath. The handsome man blurred and smeared. She wiped desperately at her eyes, wishing he would retreat as quickly as he'd come. Didn't he have a table to get back to? Oh, hey, I'm sorry, I was just joking. Oh, man, I'm a jerk. His brows moved together, eyes crinkled in concern. He set a large hand on top of the beanie he wore and squeezed. Lillian shook her head. No, just, just a bad day. I found out I, uh, I need to move. She buried her face in one hand and waved the orange paper still clutched in the other. Hence the sign. Well, I can tell you it's a great place to live. I know the managers personally. They're really fantastic. You should definitely check it out. She nodded, tears finally slowing. Unfortunately, hiccups rushed in to be sure to embarrass her, just in case the tears hadn't done the job. They stood awkwardly a few seconds longer until he finally mumbled something about dinner and friends waiting, and then slunk off. Lillian groaned. She leaned back against the wall, taking a few more deep breaths, no longer hungry. She looked at the flyer again, then folded it and tucked it away in her purse. She would call first thing in the morning. For now... She pulled her phone from the pocket in her purse and dialed her mom. Chapter One I'm going to miss you, Lillian told Roxanne. The other woman, just a few years older than Roxanne, leaned forward to give her a hug. Her swollen stomach made it an awkward embrace, and they both laughed. I'll miss you too, but I have to admit, after the winter we had, I'm not too sad that my husband was relocated to Florida. White sandy beaches and warm weather all year long? Here I come. So, I probably shouldn't put a damper on things by talking about scorpions and alligators and hurricanes. 
Lillian tilted her head, tapping her chin thoughtfully. Roxanne looped her purse over her shoulder. Ha ha, she said dryly on her way out. The rest of the day was relatively quiet, especially with Lillian alone at the front desk. Supposedly, a replacement for Roxanne was being transferred from another branch sometime that week, as well as a new office manager. Lillian didn't think much about either new employee. Since her breakup with Drew, she'd become disillusioned with the insurance world, or maybe just bored with it. She itched for a change, but couldn't pry herself away from the safety of her health benefits and cushion of a recent raise. At 3.45, the front door swung open, the late March afternoon sun shining in Lillian's eyes when she looked up. She winced. How many times did she do that a week and still hadn't learned? A dark figure came forward and stepped up to her desk. She blinked the dots away and stared into the face of Drew. Surprise, he said, his lips twisted in a brash smile. Looks like we finally get to work together, Lee. Lillian sucked in a breath. Work together? Her lips curled at his nickname for her. How dare he? Mr. Finch's thunderous voice boomed behind her before she had to answer. Drew, early as usual. Good to see you again. We're about to set up for the meeting and go on back and get settled. We'll round everyone up and introduce you. A slow buzzing began to work through Lillian's head and down into her ears. She fought to swallow past her dry throat. Drew winked at her, as if he had any right to, and stared around Mr. Finch. Lillian worked past her thick tongue as Drew. Drew disappeared down the hall. Lillian, you can message everyone and tell them to be in the conference room in ten. And you'll need to jot down minutes, Mr. Finch said as he drummed on the top of the tall counter that wrapped around her desk. She began to nod, but stood quickly. Is that, uh, is that, uh, is that the new manager? Did he notice the warble of her voice? Yep, that's him. He's joining us from the Boise office. See you in a few. Wait, Mr. Finch? He turned partially around, mouth in a flat line. Yeah? Her mind went blank. What could she say? Her dry throat and buzzing stomach weren't giving her any ideas. Finch watched her open and close her mouth like an idiot for a minute before he set his mouth. He turned to leave before she could ask any more questions, or non-questions, Lillian slowly dropped back into her chair, barely registering the way it rolled slightly, causing her to grasp the desk to steady herself. This cannot be happening. Three months. It had been three long months since she'd moved out, since she called her mom and her mom's friends from the motorcycle shop where she worked for help. Without hesitation, they'd arrived, lining the street with the trucks they drove in the winter months. Men and women she'd known all of her life strode into her house, packed everything up, kept Drew away, and whisked her to her new apartment in one day. By the time Lillian had arrived for work the following Monday, she was exhausted from moving and emotionally drained. She poured herself into work and refused to think about Drew. At least during the day, she worked, went home, and watched hours of Netflix. Happy Netflix. Shows that distracted her. She didn't let herself think until the darkness closed in and the haunting loneliness of each evening reminded her of what she'd lost. For weeks, Lillian had cried herself to sleep. Then she began to grow numb, until Drew called to say she'd left a box in the closet at their townhouse. She let him bring it over, mostly to show him how much better off she was without him. When he stepped into her apartment that night, her mind had taunted, even as her heart raced. See, Drew? See my new apartment and my independence and how totally, wonderfully fine I am without you? See how you and Hillary didn't wreck me forever? I'm doing just fine, thank you very much. 
but when he left, she had curled up on her couch and dissolved into lonely tears. That short meeting had not only started her tears all over again, it had solidified the end of the relationship, which was good, she knew. She really did. But her heart wasn't so great at listening to logic. Lillian finally decided she didn't want to cry about Drew anymore. She started checking out books at the library and reading instead of watching TV. She made a habit of going to the bakery across the street every Saturday morning. The bakery owner, a kind, warm woman in her mid-fifties, would often sit and talk with her, smoothing out the jagged edges of her loneliness, feeding her soul with kindness and chocolate croissants. She'd pulled herself together, moved on. But now, what was she going to do now? She couldn't work for Drew. Not day after day after day. Not ever. Lillian snapped back to the prison and sent an office-wide notice through their instant messaging system for the employees to meet in the conference room. Her trembling fingers made the simple task take much longer than it should have. She clasped her hands together, wondering how she was going to be calm enough in five minutes to be in the same room with him, let alone take meeting notes. She stilled, a decision washing over her. She walked purposely to the meeting, ignoring the mix of shock and annoyance on her co-workers' faces when she pushed the door a little too forcefully. It banged loudly against the wall before she could catch it. Gary Finch sighed and angled his gaze over the glasses perched on his nose. Thanks for joining us, Miss Rogers. Have a seat. Lillian faltered, opened and closed her mouth like a dying fish for the second time in ten minutes. She knew what to say, but had no idea how to say it, or how to push the words beyond her dry throat. Drew crooked an eyebrow at her. His lips curved into a small smile. Did he think this would give him access to a restart? Um, no. A sudden calm overtook Lillian. She squared her shoulders. Sorry, sir. I just thought you should know that I won't be able to work here any longer. She said, her voice only trembling slightly. All eyes volleyed from her to Mr. Finch. Drew's smile fell out of place, pulling the blood from his face down with it. The phones around the branch rang, echoing from her desk into the device in the middle of the table. The stairs of the group swung back to Lillian. She took a step back and gestured toward the phone. Someone might want to get that, she said, then turned on her heel and left. Thanks, Bethany, for sharing with us your latest book, Even If, and that can be found online in ebook and in print. And now it's time for some Christmas wisdom by David Roper. Here's an article called Look Further for the Season's Meaning. A neighbor installed an inflatable Santa Claus in his front yard last Christmas. But when the season had run its course, the Santa deflated, a condition that epitomizes our overblown Christmas dreams. There's no time of the year like Christmas to develop unrealistic expectations. We enter the season with bright hope, but something always goes wrong. Even when things go right, our wished-for happiness never arrives. We end the season empty and yearning for that elusive something more. Carolyn and I had an experience some years ago that underscores our disenchantment with Christmas. It took place at Boise's Festival of Trees, an event we attended with our grandchildren. As we moved from one brightly lit Christmas tree to the next, pointing and exclaiming, our littlest granddaughter, surfeited by splendor, lost interest, until she came to a tiny manger scene. She paused, transfixed. We tried to move on, but she lingered, pressing closer to the child. Finally, reluctantly, she agreed to leave, looking back over her shoulder to get one more glimpse of the crash through the trees. 
As we left the building, Melissa took my hand. Papa, she whispered, can we go see the baby again? So we returned to the manger, and I waited while she gazed adoringly at the child. I thought to myself, how easily I can overlook Jesus amidst the trees. Christmas comes and goes, and we ask, is this all there is? For you see, our deepest longings are for something more than just hallmark moments and memories. We long for God and His love. The child in the manger is that for which we've all been looking all our lives. It's been said over and over, but it needs to be said again. Jesus is the reason for the season. Nothing else will do. Christmas, as our culture defines it, will always disappoint us. But Jesus never will. As Christmas approaches, remember to look for the reason for the season. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.